My name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. Listening, more specifically, to a little limited series that we're doing for the month of October, which we are calling Epoque Conversation. In Epoque Conversation, I'm going to be talking just sort of aimlessly about general horror things. I'm very interested in horror, as I've mentioned in the last installment of Epoque Conversation, but I never talk about it because it, it seems like increasingly niche. Although, I guess horror has never really been more popular than it is right now. Kind of the meme dialogue, the meme discourse has sort of illustrated how people really like Spooky Season. I always thought growing up that people weren't particularly over the moon about Halloween, but then fucking now on the internet, it's like everyone is obsessed with pumpkins and spookiness, whatever. The horror-related thing that's topical at the moment is that the trailer just dropped for Scream 5, which immediately brings two things to mind. The first of them is like when, when, I don't know when the word dropped entered my lexicon seamlessly as like just another word for released. Cause I think, I'm pretty sure that the word dropped started out in reference to music. Like you would say so-and-so just dropped an album. And now, like, I don't have a problem with it though, in the way that some people have an issue with like, with words like content. But anyways, that's the first thing that comes to mind. And then the second thing that comes to mind is that this new Scream, which again is the fifth in the series, is just called Scream, which bothers me. I don't think that it should, but I sometimes wonder if like it's only natural that it should bother me. And this, like the next episode is going to feature my conversation with a writer named Douglas Wolk. And he has a new book that came out this week. It's called All of the Marvels. And it is his account of his huge project of reading all 27,000 issues of Marvel Comics. Like, that's not every issue of Marvel Comics. He only read the ones that actually encompass the sort of unified Marvel universe. But in that conversation, we talk about nerd culture and about taking taking these comic books really seriously, even though when Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko were making these comics, when they sort of brought Marvel to ascension in the 1940s and 50s, they did not expect any of this shit to last. They were being printed on very cheap paper. They were expected to just disappear, like like any other kind of ephemeral entertainment. They certainly were not expected, even if they did endure as like little kitschy cultural artifacts, I, I certainly don't think that any of these writers or illustrators expected for the stories to be taken seriously. But then a bunch of people came to it, they discovered the comic books, started reading consistently, they grew attached to the characters, and then they started taking it very seriously. More seriously, in some respects, than the creators took it, and that, I, and that becomes the seed for a certain kind of issue that, that is recurrent with genre-based fandom. Not that there's anything wrong with the fans in that respect, the fact that they, you know, that the, the story that they're talking about, whether it's Star Trek or Star Wars or Halloween, whatever, that it means so much to them. But it, it creates a friction between them and the creators. I think, like, I wonder, well, I'm sure, that, like, George Lucas must have had a hard time with this, the way that Star Wars just exploded and kind of encompassed his career. Because I'm sure on the one hand, it's like very, very cool and rewarding for him to have created this thing that people love. They're, they're bathing you in praise. You, you spend your entire career being told that your work changed people's lives, helped them to bond with their families, overcome their demons, whatever. That's got to be really 
rewarding and probably you probably never get tired of hearing about it so long as you're not hearing it in like intrusive ways with people going through your trash and saying that they're doing it because they love you what's probably not rewarding though apart from the trash invasion which is a routine thing that actually happened to Cormac McCarthy and I'm like a huge Cormac McCarthy fan and I remember reading about that like Cormac McCarthy got pissed because someone was going through his trash looking for details about who you know McCarthy's private life and on the, I, immediately I was like oh my god that's so fucking weird and then the first thing that crossed my mind was like what did he find but yeah what's probably not rewarding is the idea is living in the shadow of this thing that you created that ended up meaning so much to so many people because while you want to want to continue to grow creatively it's kind of like your audience doesn't want you to deviate from the thing that gave them so much joy they want you to give them more of it and more of it and also in many cases it's hard to get funding for your new original project because people only want to give you lots and lots of money if they know that there's a guaranteed audience you like you've been appointed to the role of gatekeeper for this thing that from which you would very much like to move on isn't that the kind of vibe that you're, you get from the prequels that George Lucas made, the Star Wars prequels that he made when he was, was in his 50s? Because in in that case, it was like he he wanted to play with his old toys, you can tell, but he wanted to use those toys to explore things that were newly interesting to him as a, like a, a late middle-aged man. Things like trade agreements and Senate debates. Those prequels are so incredibly awful, and I, I really think it's an automatic sign of pretension when someone tries to stand up for those prequels and argue that they're actually very good and underrated. And in my, in my experience, at least, in the times that I have heard people defend the Star Wars prequels, they aren't just shrugging their shoulders and saying, yeah, whatever, I kind of like it, I understand, it's not that popular. That would be fine. In fact, that would be very charming. Instead, overwhelmingly, what I tend to hear when someone is coming to the defense of those prequels is they say things like, oh, you don't understand. People don't realize. They make an argument whose, whose essence is basically that the reason they appreciate the Star Wars prequels is because they have, you know, a sharper and more refined aesthetic than other people. Or a superior intelligence. Anyway, what I was saying is that I feel like it's silly to be irked about little things like the fact that Scream 5 is being released with the title Scream. Because Scream is the title of the first movie, and this is the fifth one, and you shouldn't do that. So it's Scream, Scream 2, Scream 3, Scream 4, and then Scream. Again. The same thing happened with Halloween. There's Halloween, then Halloween 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, and then Halloween H2O, and then Halloween Resurrection, and then we get a remake from Rob Zombie, called Halloween, and a sequel to the remake, called Halloween 2. And then we get a reboot, which is actually supposed to be a direct sequel to the original, except it's got the same title as the original, Halloween, which is not to be confused with the other movie in the franchise, which is also called Halloween, and which is directed by Rob Zombie. I think there's like a dozen movies in the franchise now, and three of them are called Halloween. Like, it's kind of, like, it's irksome, but at the same time, it's fun to pour over these things, and I guess it's fun to argue about it with friends over drinks and shit, but then sometimes I get irked with myself, and I'm like, why am I being so difficult and judgmental as a fan? Why can't I just take what I'm being served, observe whether I like it or not, and then move on? Over the years, I've consumed so many interviews with filmmakers and writers who, you know, they complain about the nitpicking of their audiences. And since I myself try to write those kinds of stories, I tend to, I tend to take the side of the creator. Of the creator. And I'm like, man, why can't audiences just lighten up? I'm with you. And I forget, meanwhile, that the reason I want, I'm siding with these people is, the is because I want to tell those kinds of stories too. I want to be on their side of the aisle, their side of the microphone. I want to be the storyteller. And the reason I want to be the storyteller is because before I was, you're a storyteller, you're a fan of stories. Anyway, the Scream trailer looks good. I'm definitely going to go see it. But when I saw the, I saw the trailer when it, the moment it dropped, I was at work and then I went to my boss 
and my boss is in his mid-40s, and he's a big movie buff. And I was like, hey, Chuck, did you see Scream in theaters? And he was like, yeah, I saw the first one, um, but I didn't see the sequels, and I heard that they were terrible, so I skipped them all. And when he said that, I was like, yeah, I've seen all the sequels. The fourth one is good. But then I thought about it, and I was like, was Scream 4 good, or was it just not bad? I remember seeing it in theaters on my birthday, in my sophomore year of college, the day that it came out, and I really enjoyed it, but I was also there with friends, and we were at Dolphin Mall, which gets pretty rowdy, and we were drunk ourselves, and we were in a packed theater on opening night, so I probably shouldn't judge my perception of Scream 4 based on that viewing, because I haven't watched the movie since that opening day viewing, and what I'm probably remembering more than the actual movie was the joy of sitting in that audience and collectively reacting to it. Another movie where I thought that it was going to be diminished when I went from seeing it in theaters to watching it at home was um, Paranormal Activity, which as I've mentioned a million times, I saw in a packed theater on opening night and everyone was losing their fucking mind. But then, flash forward like eight years and my friend Jesus got me the whole series on DVD and I sat down with it. Um, around this time last year. I sat down and I was going to record for the podcast a commentary track in October uh, for the first Paranormal Activity movie, and I had to turn it off after like 10 minutes. It scared the shit out of me all over again, and I think it's just the quietness, the, the way it's shot in such a mundane way, and it's so much about the interior of an average-looking home, and it makes you so mindful of the interior of your own home where you're watching it. Another movie that fucking drew fluids out of me was The Blair Witch Project, I saw Blair Witch on VHS when I was 14, and that was back at the time that VHS tapes were being phased out or, or like totally discontinued. A bit of trivia, the last major Hollywood movie that was released on VHS was A History of Violence in 2005, starring Viggo Mortensen. But yeah, VHS tapes were being discontinued, but I had a VCR in my bedroom. So like people on eBay were purging their collections in favor of DVDs, selling their movies, their VHS tapes for like a dollar a piece. And my parents were pretty strict about what I could rent from Blockbuster, so I just started buying shit. And my parents never found out, but so that's how I watched Blair Witch Project, was, was I watched it secretly, and I watched it alone, and I watched it when I was young, which is a perfect recipe for trauma. I've seen it twice since that initial viewing, and the second time like the third viewing was somewhere in the past four or five years and I still thought it was scary I still thought it was interesting but it doesn't quite hit me in the same way as it did back in whatever that was the golden shower of 2005 those were the years when puberty followed me around like a fucking invidious invisible friend and was just like now you're gonna have an erection no reason but it's not going anywhere I used to get Sorry to like, I, I was wondering recently, like, do I invoke this kind of sexual shit way too often? I don't mean to be vulgar about it, but it's just, I don't know, just to be candid about it. I remember I used to get erections in one particular class in middle school. It was my algebra class. It was the first class I had in the morning. And we had a teacher, this is about the teacher, not the erections. We had a teacher who now, looking back, was clearly very young, but clearly in her mid-twenties, although she just struck me as like amorphously adult. And she was, well, she was known for being so fucking mean and angry all the time. And at the time, we all just fucking hated her for it. But again, looking back on her outbursts, which I remember somewhat vividly, I don't know why they stayed in my mind. They don't look like, yeah, she was being really mean and she was always yelling at people and like saying very ad hominem shit, but it doesn't, it doesn't in retrospect look vindictive. Not at all. It looks now rather like someone who kind of wanted to be a teacher, not a disciplinarian, but who invariably just had to spend her entire day yelling at people so that they would stop 
doing like obnoxious shit. And there's two factors to consider there. It was the first class of my day. I was 13 and 14 that year. And like I said, always had an erection in that class at some point and usually for a long time. And it wasn't because I was turned on or anything. It's just because hormones. And I realize now, because at the time, of course, you're so solipsistic and you think that what's happening to you is happening to you alone. But now I'm looking back and I'm like, it was probably the case with everyone around me. Not that they were all getting erections necessarily, but hormones were flying around. And impulse control was not really a skill that anyone had mastered at that point. So, so there's that, is the, the ubiquity of hormones. The second thing to consider is that I was always <laughs> in remedial math class. And I think that by the time you're a teenager, if you are in remedial math class, a lot, maybe the majority of authority figures in your life have already fallen into the routine of just casually communicating to you that it's hopeless, that you're fucked. And again, that's not necessarily them being vindictive. What I think it reflects kind of tragically, kind of beautifully maybe, is that their own dreams and expectations are being dashed. Because they come into the job with these romantic notions of how they're gonna teach these kids, how they're gonna change lives, it's gonna be like stand and deliver or something. All these kids are gonna be coming in from broken homes with black eyes and then they're gonna be Michelle Pfeiffer or whoever the fuck and Hillary Swank and they're gonna like lift this kid up and make sure they're um, empowered and ready to tackle the world. And then reality hits and it's unrelenting and they come to class every day and it's just a bunch of fucking idiots with erections asking if it's time for lunch at 9 a.m. And so all through middle school and all through high school, I was in what they call regular science and regular math. Although people, and I call it remedial because that's what it was. Because the student body in general was promoted to either honors or AP classes with such abandon. Like you basically had to demonstrate literacy and body temperature and they were like, yep, this one's gifted. They had very low standards for what qualified as like an honorary academic status. I remember routinely that the teachers would just level with us and they'd be like, guys, I just want to get through the day. Which in retrospect is kind of tragic. I mean, part of it's, there's that beautiful component in that they were so nakedly crushed, I think, about the fact that they could not be for us the thing that they wanted to be for us, which was some guiding light, some inspiring agent of learning. It was so clear that we would not allow them to inspire us that they just totally dropped the facade. And they were like, guys, I don't want to be here with you. I know you don't want to be here with me. So I'm going to put on my home DVD copy of The Day After Tomorrow for the sixth time this month. And you and I are just going to sweat the day out. Anyway, the math teacher I was telling you about a minute ago. Okay, so I'm 14 or whatever. I'm in her class. And like I say, she's always angry. Understandably, because we were horrible. And this is probably a horrible job. But one day she shows up to work. And normally she was a bit of a fashionista, not in a very flashy way, but she, always you could tell she had an eye towards style. But on this particular day, she showed up and she was wearing not quite pajamas, but something close to pajamas. And she was wearing a beanie pulled down really low on her head. So that was weird in itself, but what was even weirder is that she was being really nice to everyone. Over in that corner of the room, we were joking with each other all, all through class, like, oh, I bet she got laid, <laughs> which is such a fucking stupid. All right, so, so that happens. She's, she comes in in pajamas. She's very, very friendly, whatever. A couple weeks go by. Suddenly there's this stretch of like five or six days where she is on a fucking war path. She is mad as hell. And she is yelling, there was, like, it was several days, but there was one day in particular where she yelled to the point that she was screaming, like, fucking red-faced, 
spit sparking out of her mouth. And it was so loud, so dramatic, so emotional that a guard, a security guard, like threw the door open and, and poked her head in. And she was like, everything okay? Everything okay? And the teacher was like, yeah, yeah, no, everything's fine. Everything's fine. And so the security guard like gives us all this really dirty look, like trying to intimidate us and like have the teacher's back, which I respect. And then the security guard leaves and the teacher like, she's still, she's sitting at her desk and she composes herself. She takes a moment. And then once the security guard is gone and once the teacher has composed herself, she stands up from her desk. She puts her hands down on the surface. She leans forward over the entire class and she goes, everybody listen. I just found out I'm pregnant, okay? And from there, she went on for a few minutes with this spiel about how she's not gonna put up with anyone's shit for the next few days or, or weeks because she's got a lot on her mind. She's got to change her whole life around, whatever. And I remember everyone in my corner of the room, we all looked at each other and we were gaping and we were like, that day she came in with the pajamas and she was really happy. She really did get laid. I mean, maybe not. It was cool to think that we might have gotten it right. Anyways, Scream 5 looks good. Um, although I'm not sure if they're going to play with the metafictional stuff that has always made the franchise so unique. Like, it does seem as though they're playing with the reboot formula and kind of riffing on how it's so predictable at this point. But it's strange to think that the first movie was meant as a satire and the second movie and the third and the fourth. And they are all satires that explore and ridicule and subvert and celebrate certain conventions of different aspects of horror movies, like Scream is just a masterpiece dissecting the slasher genre. And then Scream 2 talks about immediate sequels of, you know, iconic slasher movies. But what's weird is that with Scream, you know, it's it was satire, satire, satire. And after, like, part three was basically straight farce, although it gets kind of serious toward the end. And then suddenly, like, Scream 4, it still has a sense of humor, but it's been, at that point, it had been like 15 years that this franchise had been around. And also the three big stars, Nev Candle, Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, and David Arquette, they're super cool, and they keep coming back for it, for the, for the newest installment. And I think after so much time, the audience just warms so much to those characters that we start taking it very seriously and we start becoming genuinely concerned when we find that character in jeopardy. And so it looks with Scream 5, which is technically called Scream, and it, um, this is based on the trailer, but um, I did get the vibe that they're just playing this story straight, that there's no tongue-in-cheekness. Although, again, that's just the, it's the first trailer. The movie doesn't come out till January, so who knows. Anyways, that's it for this week's episode of Epoque Conversation. Wait, this is me coming back because I had more to say. The other thing that occurs to me, um, like, because I'm thinking about watching these movies in middle school and how I'm also kind of looking forward to this other movie, is just that, like, my early teenage self would be so enchanted to think that there would be a day like today where I'm 30 and I've got a little bit of disposable income and here I am, I'm looking down the line at a forthcoming Scream movie, and this was exactly the franchise that I was, you know, so eager to see when I was, like, in middle school. And I'm going to be able to watch it, like, in theaters. I'm not going to have to make a case to my parents about why I should be able to see it. Or, or if not that, I don't have to pull off one of these, like, Ocean's Eleven jaunts across the hallway at a movie theater where, like, I would buy a ticket for a PG-13 movie and then try to be very discreet about sneaking into an R-rated movie. And I always had a sense that they could tell from my body language or if there was just some kind of guilt perpetually written on my face. I just felt like there was... The people who worked at the theater were always scrutinizing me, like expecting me to sneak into an R-rated movie. I did that one time for Resident Evil, the second Resident Evil movie, which I think was Resident Evil Apocalypse. And I walked into the theater when the movie... I, I crept. I slunk into the theater when the movie was already like 10 minutes 
underway. And I sat down yet next to this, like, very, it was an adult couple, but they were kind of youngish. And I was like, guys, I'm really sorry, but I just really want to see this movie. Like, do you mind if I sit next to you and, like, you pretend you're my parents if someone comes in? And to my astonishment, in retrospect, this, it was super cool of them. They were like, yeah, that's fine, but nobody's going to come in which I, th I figured was them just being optimistic, but it turned out to be true. No one came in to check. I think part of the reason I was always so convinced that like the gavel was gonna come down on me if I did something remotely illegal. Like I was so terrified of the law that I would not stand still at a place where there was a sign that said no loitering. If there was a sign that said no loitering, I would actually pick up my pace with the express intention that like, if there's any sort of law enforcement figure looking, I want them to see that I am deferring to their preferences. And also I never looked at law enforcement people as being like dudes with jobs. I always thought of them as like agents of justice, like people who believed in the law. And I think part of that is fucking cause that's what my dad was like. And my, my dad worked in law enforcement for a while um, in some capacity and he very much like believed in the law and he championed it as like this sublime entity that always prevails. Martin Luther King says that the arc of the arc of the moral or the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And I think my dad definitely instilled that kind of idea slash ideal in my mind, the like murder will out and you know, justice prevails. Although in reality, speaking of murder will out, my understanding of things at the moment, based on some shit I've recently been reading, and re is that a pretty solid police department, like one that you can say is performing quite well, is a police department in which maybe 50% of homicides are solved. And by solved, it means, you know, someone got arrested. Although even then, like what percentage of those people are not the fucking guy? Cormac McCarthy says in one of his books, I think it's The Crossing, that you know, one day when the world is over and somebody does all of the math, it might turn out that there was more punishment than there was crime. Which on the surface is like a very beautiful idea, like beautiful in a sad way, like more punishment than there was crime. But then it also seems a bit silly at first glance, not on second glance, but it seems silly on first glance because if you look at the news every day, you look at the crime that's like just happening in every in like everyday American politics and like white collar crime that's going on, uh, especially in big tech companies and shit like that. And you think like, oh my, there's so much fucking crime that goes unpunished, huge amounts of flagrant crime that, that, that victimizes legions of people and no one goes to jail for it. But then on further inspection, I guess if you look at it like, you know, internationally and you think of all of the suffering that has been imposed on people under the disguise of justice, like religious persecutions and discrimination based on sexual orientation and race and ethnicity. If all of that quote unquote punishment that has ever taken place could be quantified and put in a bag and then put on a scale beside the other the quantifications of, of crimes that were actually committed, then yeah, I guess it's like punishment would take the cake in that sense. I was just listening to an interview with the novelist Mark Z. Danielewski, and he was talking about fear, everyday fear, as having a sort of adversarial relationship to knowledge, or an inverse relationship to knowledge. Because in one respect, it's definitely the case that, you know, the more you learn, the more aware you become of the threats and the dangers that hover all around you in your daily life. And there's a lot to be legitimately scared of. There's illness and drunk drivers and mass shootings. But Danielewski uses COVID as an example. 
and he's you know he sets the stage he says there's this terrible pandemic hundreds of thousands of people are dying we are we're locking ourselves inside it's absolutely terrifying and of course none of us has experienced anything like this in our lives but he says you know the more he started to read some reliable stuff about the virus and once he had a solid idea of like what the symptoms are and how it's treated and how it's communicated well then slowly the fear begins to subside at least it, it, it subsides to the degree that like you know which behaviors are most dangerous and you can lean away from those behaviors it doesn't guarantee that you're safe but you can rest a little bit easier and now that i think about it like that thing that he's talking about uh, you know the more you know the safer you are whatever uh, and the more it ameliorates your fear that kind of manifests in the Scream franchise. Like, the characters are always saying, okay, we are in a horror movie, we're in a sequel, or we're, we're in a trilogy, and here's what happened. Here are the rules of a sequel and the rules of a trilogy, and if you abide by these rules, then you will stay safe. And so the characters who are most well-versed in horror, the characters who know, who have studied the situation in which they find themselves, they've studied the historical precedent, those are the ones who end up prevailing for the most part. But anyways, that is this, uh, this, I don't want to say week since, maybe there'll be another one this week. But this is the current installment of Epoque Conversation. Thank you for joining me, and I will talk to you next time.